Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Make your pages look professional with vellum. Margins, headers, page numbering, font, line spacing, all happen automatically with every book you create. Generate eBooks for Kindle, Apple Books, Kobo, and others, or deliver a beautiful print book to your readers. Visit trivellum.com forward slash pants to learn more. Vellum, create beautiful books. We're here with Pam Munter, author of Fading Fame, Women of a Certain Age in Hollywood, which tells the fictionalized stories of old Hollywood actresses and addresses some of the issues that we talk about today, such as the Me Too movement. And it obviously is in the news and constantly being updated, of course, as people continue to come forward with their stories. But the casting couch in particular is hardly a new reality in the world of Hollywood. So if you could tell us a little bit about the book Fading Fame and how you came to write it. I have always been in love with Hollywood. That's no secret since my first movie at age five. It never quite left me. I'm really a writer of nonfiction and mostly and what I have written up to this point has been nonfiction. I wrote a whole bunch of stories about old, mostly dead Hollywood actors and actresses for classic images and films of the golden age. And so I've always written to some extent about Hollywood. When I got into the Master of Fine Arts program, though, I was told that writing nonfiction was not enough, that I had to have a second genre, which kind of freaked me out because nonfiction is all I've ever written and really all I ever read. I thought, okay, well, I'll try my hand at fiction. So I got into my seminar, and the instruction was to write a short story. Well, I barely knew what that was, because I read them in high school and college, but it had been a long time. So I thought, you know, I have all this information about Hollywood. What if I take that bulk of data and mess with it a little bit, fictionalize it, and produce a short story? And out came the first Actually, it's also the first one in the book called Francis. It's about Mary Pickford and her best friend, Francis Marion, who was a screenwriter. And some of the story, of course, is true. They were friends. Francis Marion was an extremely successful screenwriter. She was the first woman, in fact, to win two Oscars for screenwriting. Mary was, in fact, a pioneer in Hollywood. She was the first woman to form her own studio believe it or not, before the 1920s. And then she and Douglas Fairbanks and D.W. Griffith and Charlie Chaplin founded United Artists, which is a major studio that is still in operation today. So it was irresistible. I mean, these are such rich characters to write about. 
after I wrote that story, it turned out to be quite successful and was immediately published, much to my shock. I thought, you know, maybe there are more women whose stories have yet to be told. And so each of the stories in Fading Fame, which is a collection of 10 short stories about women of a certain age, each of them have a grain of truth to them. But of course, they're fiction. And I just love putting it together. It was so much fun to give these women space and to hopefully engender some empathy in the reader for these women and what they went through. You say that you yourself have always been interested in films and the golden age of Hollywood. What is it about this that draws you so deeply? Well, as a kid, the only mass media we had, the only information we had about Hollywood were movie magazines, and they were fake. (laughs) They were pretty much written by the studio publicists. You know, there were five major movie studios that controlled the information flow. But I believed all of it. I just thought it was wonderful. It was a fairy tale that you could walk around Hollywood and be discovered. And God knows I tried. (laughs) Um, And I believed the fairy tale lives of these people. And before I knew it, I was hooked. I mean, I later, of course, learned that hardly any of it was true, that there were gay people and people who were divorced many times and child abusers and, I mean, things we weren't supposed to know, I later found out. But it didn't dim my love for that era at all. And, of course, they produced some pretty fine films. Talking about that golden age and the arena of women, because women have a shorter shelf life in Hollywood, if you could talk about that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of the women in these stories just ran out of time. They were hired because they were sexy and willing to engage in casting couch activities. But then, you know, after a couple of years, that that they were bankable was not as important as the fact that they were no longer casting couchable, to put it politely. And so movie studios moved on. They were disposable commodities. I feel like today things are changing somewhat. I can't, of course, speak to how casting works, but I know that in media and in advertising, you are seeing more of a representation of people of color, people with all body shapes. It's not yeah. all the uh, the white, fragile beauty that was always pushed upon the public for the longest time. Speaking then about the similarities and the differences now, do you think that uh, progress has been made? <laughs> well, changes have been made, certainly. We have mass media, and everywhere you turn around, there's the 24-7 news cycle. There's very little we don't know now. To put it romantically, some of the magic has gone out of Hollywood. In a way, we know too much. We know who's suing whom and who's doing what to whom a lot of the time. Has it changed? Well, you know, one of the reasons it has changed has been the dispersal of power in Hollywood. As I said, there used to be five major studios with five nasty old white men in charge of it who could do what they wanted. That's no longer the case, Harvey Weinstein aside. There are so many companies now and 
independent producers, women have options. So it's not quite as restricted. Is there sexism? You bet. I mean, every time you open the paper or the, uh, go on Google to see Me Too, it's there. Speaking about women um, in particular, I know, of course, uh, that women feel pressure to keep up their looks, keep up the image of youth, even if it's fading, even if it's leaving them. And hopefully we are moving away from it, but we're used to seeing Botox faces and faces that change and uh, women that change their looks like Renee Zellweger, you can't even recognize anymore. And they go under the knife to Mm -hmm. sometimes an extreme extent. Were those options available to women during the golden age? Uh, How did they go about attempting to preserve their youth? Well, some were, but of course the joys of plastic surgery are that most of the technological innovations have happened in the last, what, 20, 30 years. They could fix your nose pretty easily. Facelifts were riskier. With Rita Hayworth, who of course was a bombshell in the 40s, they changed her hairline, which they thought was important. But mostly they did it with makeup. They didn't do a lot of surgery back then. So there weren't options. If you got old, well, that was just too bad. I mean, you look at women who tried to keep looking young, and it's sort of sad to see that they feel they have to. Speaking of makeup, I know I don't know much about Marilyn Monroe. I'm not a fangirl, but I read Blonde by Joyce Carol Oates, and she talked about how uh, Marilyn's personal makeup artist would work on her as she aged for hours and mm-hmm. getting her just right, even to walk out of the trailer. And you know, she was only 36 when she died. So we talk about aging. I mean, it's pretty cruel. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking about that makeup and, and of course the irony being that the more of the makeup and the, the chemicals that you're piling onto your skin, the more you're actually aging your skin. Yes. Yes. And of course, we didn't know about tanning and the costs of that kind of thing on skin cancer in those days. And so you'd see movie stars sitting out by the pool, you know, getting tanned for their next role. When we talk about women and the various things that that we will do, and, and even you don't even have to be in Hollywood to right. fall victim. You certainly don't have to rely on your looks as income. Uh, we all participate in it. The yep. uh, attempt to not age is uh, certainly not restricted to Hollywood. These women that have aged out, and like you said, Marilyn Monroe was only 36 when she died. What was considered aging out? Like at what point were you, were they bringing in the fresh crop and it was harder for women to attain any type of uh, role or interest? Boy, I don't know that there was a cutoff point. I think it had to do with box office to some extent, the whims of those five white men who decided that there was better, more exciting women lining their office, you know, waiting for their next big break. Vellum, it just works. Best-selling indie author Alex Lydell, whose book Enemy Contact 
and Enemies to Lovers Romantic Suspense hit number 25 in the Amazon paid Kindle store, has this to say about Vellum. There are always a ton of hang-ups in the publishing process, from the printer running out of ink at just the wrong moment to Amazon rejecting margins. But Vellum has been one program I can depend on. It formats my manuscripts quickly, professionally, and, most importantly, in a way that never gets rejected by any online retailers. Visit www.trivellum.com forward slash pants to learn more. That's trivellum.com forward slash pants. Vellum. It just works. PubSite is the new, easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 50, PubSite gives you the tools to build, design, and update your website pain-free. Build your site with a 14-day free trial. PubSite is easy to use. You can set up a simple site within a couple of hours, and when you're ready, enhance with features like a blog, photo gallery, book tour calendar, mailing list sign-up, social media feeds, and more. Too busy to build your own site? Have a PubSite expert build your site for a small fee. PubSite is used by authors such as Tom Clancy, Robin Cook, and Janet Daly. Visit PubSite.com to get started now. You mentioned that you yourself uh, have a history as a performer. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, as part of falling in love with Hollywood, I think, you know, I, I was convinced that anybody could do it. <laughs> I don't think that anymore, but certainly I did then. One of my undergraduate degrees is in theater. So I started doing some of that. And as I got older, I realized that you really couldn't have a career in that that was stable there was a lot of common sense in my life, so <laughs> I knew better than that. I grew up to have a lot of college training and other things besides theater. But when I finished my career as a clinical psychologist, I decided to jump into show business full time, which I, I could do. You know, I had the luxury of doing that. I went to a, an actor's conservatory. I took singing lessons. And I started appearing in independent productions in Portland, Oregon, which is where I was living at the time, got an agent, got some film parts, and started traveling the country with a jazz cabaret show. Played all the major cities in the country. I needed to play that out. I needed to find out what I was capable of doing and to experience really from the inside what some of my heroes had gone through. And I'm so glad I did it. I'm not, my last gasp was... <laughs> I decided to learn to play the cornet. Now, when I was a young girl, girls didn't play that instrument. They didn't play trumpets and cornets. They played flutes and violins. And so I thought, screw that. I'm going to learn to play the cornet. And I formed a Dixieland band. We were traveling around the area I live in now, near Palm Desert, doing shows. I was singing and playing the cornet. And that was the last uh, really show-busy thing I did. Now I'm just writing about it which is a lot more fun, really, in some ways. And t when you talk about writing about Hollywood, this particular book, Fading Fame, is fiction, but you said you had done quite a bit of nonfiction writing as well. It was a topic close to your heart. So who are some of your 
favorite golden age of Hollywood actresses and what are some of your favorite stories from that time? Well, I fell in love with Doris Day very young. Um, my first movie, in fact, was hers. It was called Romance on the High Seas, and she had a, a really a blockbuster part. It was her first starring role. It's one of those magical things, you know. She's discovered at a party, and she's hired, and boom, she's a star almost overnight. I love that story, of course, because that's the myth of Hollywood. But as I followed her career, I realized that all was not wonderful with Doris Day. One of the stories, of course, would have to be about Doris and fading fame because I felt I knew so much about her already and her travails. Later on, the more I read, the more I realize how victimized she was and how oppressed. Uh, you wouldn't know that because Warner Brothers created this sunny girl-next-door image for all of us that she maintained all of her life, really. But it wasn't quite true. When she was discovered, quote-unquote, at this party, she was signed to a contract by Michael Curtiz, who was a very well-known director. People know him really for having directed movies like Casablanca, for instance. But he was a predator. Uh, a recent biography came out about him that suggested that he was a compulsive womanizer. On the set, Doris had to pay her dues to be involved with that. She was signed to a contract by Jack Warner, who was another famous predator. You know, we didn't know all of that. So you have to wonder, what did she go through to get where she got? And where she got was fame. You know, she was famous. She was obviously very talented. I mean, a, a wonderful actress, an even better singer, and had a wonderful career. And really, she was one of the few people, I think, of the women I have written about in Fading Fame, who had a satisfactory ending to her life. You know, she left the career when her husband, who built her out of millions of dollars, died. She went on to found animal foundations and moved to Carmel and had this huge operation. But she loved what she did then. And most of the women in the book didn't end as well. So her story is uh, sort of a tale of Hollywood, what you had to do and how to escape successfully. And a lot of women didn't escape successfully. That's right. They didn't. One of the people I discuss in the book is Joan Davis, whom your listeners may not know or remember, but she was a vaudeville performer for years. I uh, had a very popular radio show. It was top rated. And then is probably best known for her starring role in a TV sitcom about the same time as I Love Lucy premiered. It was called I Married Joan. And uh, it was very popular. She did it for you know, three, or, three or four years, I think. My story deals with her short-term affair uh, with Eddie Cantor, who was also well-known at the time. And her ending was sad because of her alcoholism. She pretty much drank herself to death. And again, the time was up for her. She couldn't get a deal. Her television show was canceled. She was too old by that time. She was in her 50s way too old to be hired by anybody. And that's a more typical ending, not necessarily the alcoholism, but the the kind of petering out of a life. Yeah, without having something else, another interest, something else to live for. Yeah, well, and I think that's true of, of anything. If, if a person is completely 
sold into and uh, dedicated to one thing, if that one thing is no longer available to you, that's devastating. Oh, you're right. And certainly Hollywood stardom required uh, 24-7 dedication. I mean, that was the only way to be. And they had no hobbies or interests outside, really, of themselves, to put it bluntly. And everything was around being successful, being famous, being known, getting fans. You know, all of that was uh, what was most important to them. So when that went away, there was nothing. They didn't even develop close relationships, many of them. Doris, for instance, her closest friend were her her schleps, you know, people who worked for her. And that's a very different kind of friendship than you or I might develop. When you talk about yourself and making that transition from being a performer to being a writer, what kind of skills were useful in both? Well, I'd always been a writer of some sort. I, you know, I started a typewritten newspaper when I was nine. And I got so much reinforcement from teachers. And in high school, I was editor of the paper, and I you know, wrote movie reviews every week. When I was a psychologist, I, wrote, I had a newsletter for my clients. And of course, I wrote academic articles, which were required for being a professor in a university. And when I did showbiz after that, I wrote my own shows. In cabaret, you do a lot of talking. You sing, but you also have patterns, they call it. So it wasn't difficult to make the transition to writing. I started by writing about, again, old dead movie actors that I was curious about from my childhood. I was watching TV once, and I saw a movie featuring five actors who pretended to be teenagers. Actually, they weren't teenagers, but the series was starring the teenagers. And I sort of wondered about the lead actor. His name was Freddie Stewart. As much as I studied film, nobody I knew had ever heard of this guy. And he made you know, maybe a dozen movies in Hollywood in the 40s. So the first article I ever wrote was a research piece about Freddie Stewart because I was curious. And I went on to write, you know, as I say, a couple dozen more about people I wanted to know more about. So really, it was a intellectual, emotional curiosity that got me started writing about Hollywood more aggressively than I had been in the past. And what led you to become a psychiatrist? Because that is so divergent from these creative urges of writing and acting. I think people work in mental health because of their own personal experiences. You know, I was raised in a, a loving but dysfunctional family and wondered how I turned out the way I did because I'm nothing like them. And again, a curiosity about my own life, I think, led me to read books about uh, human development and personality development. I wanted to know more. And so I went back to school. I got a master's degree in psychology and admitted into a PhD program in clinical psychology. And I knew I wanted to be in private practice because I'm a very independent person. I'm happier not working for somebody else. And did that for 25 years, really, and loved every minute of it. The only reason I left was managed care movement, which kind of removed my independence in big ways. That in-depth knowledge that you have about the functioning of the id and the ego and everything that comes into play and is fed very much by Hollywood and everything about the scene there 
Does that help you when you're writing about these women? Does it give you some insight into who they were and why they made the decisions they made? Oh, absolutely. I think a strength in my writing is my ability to get inside their head. Uh, There's a lot of internal dialogue in these stories, really more than action, because I, I have a sense of what they were probably thinking and experiencing internally. And I enjoyed writing about that. I actually met some of these women uh, over the course of my life, but I didn't know them very well. So I was guessing, but one can predict, really, if you have a certain set of characteristics in your life, uh, some experiences you have to undergo to get to where you want to be, that things happen inside your head. You know, the way you characterize your own self is very different than how you may present yourself to the outside world. And that divergence, I think, is fascinating. Definitely. And I think it it becomes even more fractured when you have people that are not only having to convey a certain manner to keep up a public performance at all times, but also then having to put on a new hat every time they walk out of a trailer or come onto the set. It's all artifice. It's all image. More so back in that golden age, perhaps, than it is now. I think people, as you suggested earlier, I think that things have changed enough that women can more be themselves now, and they know who that is, (laughs) than they might have in the golden age. That's good. I feel like it would be mentally exhausting to have to keep up that performance 24-7. Yeah. It becomes so much who you are. And you lose track of who you are, you know, and a lot of these women, because they were in the business so young, missed important developmental stages in developing a personality. You know, again, the friendship and the the trial and error of education. A lot of these women didn't have much education, if any. I don't think Mary Pickford went to school at all. When you were working on fading fame, You mentioned in your email to me that it had a unique writing process. Can you illuminate that? Well, it was done in chunks. You know, I had done this story, as I mentioned earlier, for my class. And I thought that would be it. I I just wanted the degree and get out. I I, I didn't think about writing anymore. Again, I'm not a fiction writer. But I got encouragement from not only the quick publication, but my classmates who were telling me, it's good and I should be writing more. And so it came in spurts. The next one was, of course, about Doris because it was so easy for me to write. I just sat down and out it flowed. I, I knew the, the crux. I wanted to talk about the violation done by her husband in stealing all her money and how she might react to that. And so one followed another. Uh, one of the stories uh, called um, The Curtain Never Falls is about an older woman who is in a wheelchair in a nursing home and probably there the rest of her life. And I got the idea for that story because I was watching a documentary about Rose Marie, who was a cabaret performer, and she's best known for being Sally Rogers on the Dick Van Dyke show. The documentary was in her last years of her life. And she said to the interviewer, you know, some nights I lie in bed and go over my act And I thought, wow, I mean, there's a story there. This woman who's about to die is still fantasizing performing. 
I can speak to how I, as a writer, then go out and, of course, you know, have to do public speaking and panels and interactions. And that, too, is a performance in many ways. And sure. it's something you do kind of analyze. Think about how you could have done it better. It can it can make you crazy. <laughs> yes, yes. We are our own worst critics. No, no doubt about that. Absolutely. And that applies to both those public performances and our writing in private. Yes. I try not to reread anything that I have had published. I did two CDs when I was singing and I never, ever listened to them because I know I'd be frustrated and want to go back and do it all again. I tell everyone that once it's in print and once it's out there and published, there I don't think there's any point in reading it or, or really interacting with it any further because you can't change it. And you will, of course, improve as you continue to write. And if I read my first book, which was published in 2013, but I wrote it in 2010, 11 years a better writer now. I have 11 years more experience. If I were to read it, I'm sure I would want things differently. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And just move on. You know, see what's next. As you say, there is a learning curve to writing. And I found that the more I wrote, I think the better writer I became. I've never been a lyrical writer. I'm very meat and potatoes. You know, I want to tell you the story and move on. I don't think I'm ever going to be any different. But I'm learning to describe things better and to immerse myself better and to throw in more dialogue and some of the, the things I've learned over the years. You end up populating that toolbox. You're right. Yes. That's a good way to put it. Last thing. Why don't mm -hmm. you let listeners know where they can find the book Fading Fame and where they can find you online? Absolutely. Uh, Amazon, which of course sells everything, <laughs> also sells Fading Fame. And you can find my memoir there too, which is called As Alone As I Want to Be, which is a little bit about the saga of my Hollywood adventures up and down. I can be found at uh, pammunter.com. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar. <laughs>